0: Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and this is episode 88. And today we're going to be tackling the topic of megachurches. Oh my, let's do this. All right, thank you guys so much for joining in on this conversation. This is a big topic, no pun intended, mega church, <laughs> because you guys really like those puns. I know, I know. But this is possibly a topic and we're not trying to be antagonistic or anything, but this can have a lot of different sides to it. So, we appreciate you guys listening in. We appreciate you guys engaging, wrestling with us and Know that all the things that we're going to be sharing are coming out of a place of love and a place of hopefulness. And so, as always, we got Shu, Xenia, and Bernard. How are you guys doing? Doing well. (laughs) Yo.
1: Bonjour, hi.
0: Oh, bonjour. Ça va? We are truly Canadian now as the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, now that we have some French. We had uh, Risi on before, right? Risi, yes. Risi. That's true. Montreal Connections. Reese, we love you. We know you're listening. <laughs> so we're talking about the topic of mega churches, and it is something that we do see, something that a couple of us are a part of, to a certain degree or not. And it is also a phenomenon in terms of we see churches get to this size and operate in this way. And so, yeah, this is something that is part of our culture now. And we see some churches grow very quickly, some over time, but to get to a number where they would maybe label as a mega church. And so maybe maybe a first question for us is, how would we even describe a, a mega church? And I think it's easy for us just to say, is it when it reaches a certain number? But I think it's more than that. I think it has to kind of, you know, it has to kind of, be a descriptor that 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 is is showing something or 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 describing something that is a shift in terms of being one type of church into being a different type of church. So, what would you guys say? How would you when you hear megachurch? What's the first thing that comes to your mind, and how would you describe it?
1: Okay, for context, though, I do I do want to talk about the numbers a little bit. So. <laughs> My Korean and American friends will often say to, to me, "No, no, no! You don't understand what mega church is. Canadians don't have mega churches, and it's true because our mega churches are really quite small because our population is smaller. So, uh, for context, the average Canadian church is about 180 people. So, anything beyond that, well, I don't know how mega mega is, but for context, I grew up in a mega church. At its peak, it was probably like." Mid four thousands touching five thousand people, so I w- I think I would call that a megachurch. Shu, what do you think?
2: Yeah, like the Canadian—that's not Canadian megachurch—and the American megachurch is even way larger than that. Like in tens of thousands, I think is is where that that's what that starts hitting the mark. But of course, we know like in Korea and other you know other churches internationally, there's megachurches that are like hundreds of thousands, if not whatever that kind of thing. So. But yeah, at least in Canada, it, that, that is the number,
0: you know. It is The Meg, a good but very bad Jason Statham movie. The Meg, so okay. after, <laughs> no, one, no one's watched that movie. <laughs> Anyways, so we're saying average church, 180, which I, I even feel like that number is high, you know, and everything perhaps above that starts to shift towards what we would label as a megachurch, is that is that what I'm hearing from you guys?
2: At least quantifiably, like there's definitely other things that that are at the table there. Yeah, and it, like
3: it's not just the numbers. I think it's the systems that are in play too, right? When you have multi staff, when you have you know just the different variety of programs and things that are put in place. I think it's that that all adds to the definition of a megachurch, right?
2: The yeah, multiple campuses, the I mean. branches, the franchising of stuff,
0: an HR department,
2: <laughs> the marketing, the branding. Okay, yeah, I, I could keep going, man. Yeah.
0: So perhaps the next logical question is, how does it make this shift? How does it get to these, you know, to these structures and to these numbers? And so, what what has kind of contributed to us? seeing this happen in churches
2: well large churches hasn't been a, a big thing like a, a, a new thing like uh, i remember like john calvin's church was like a thousand something people which doesn't exist anymore by the way so but in terms of at least from my understanding a lot of things came from a lot of the church revivalistic tent meetings that were happening back in the day that kind of stirred up you know stirred into evangelicalism and you have a lot of people trying to make these big tents and then make it essentially big church. And then there's some people like guru C. Peter Wagner from Fuller that some people study with. That's like, Oh, here are the techniques to build your church even larger, you know? And then you got Rick Warren, you got Bill Hybels, you got all these, you know, mega church gurus that were doing conferences and stuff like this is how you get bigger. and This is how you can, you know, and I don't think it was a, necessarily malicious thing or or something like they're like, oh, we're just going to be about the numbers. But like Bernard was saying, there's some systems that they're promoting or whether intentionally or unintentionally to think about church growth as the highest priority numbers growth as your biggest priority. But at least from, from a more kind of observational side for me, a lot of church become large because they suck from or I don't I don't want to say they take people, but they're attracting just Christians from other churches, from smaller churches. And that's kind of where the system, like a lot of this has come from. Where a lot of people from smaller churches that are not as resource come to a bigger church that has more resources and more attractions and more all these things that happen. And it's probably not the best, but at least that's one observation that I have about megachurches.
0: So you're kind of talking about transfer growth. Like these churches are growing because... People from other churches, primarily smaller churches, are going to these other churches that are at specific places or centers or have certain resources, right?
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm not going to just only say that they're only taking, you know, Christians from other churches, but like they could also very much be reaching out to people who are in a modern consumeristic mindset. Okay, fine. <laughs> Hey,
0: another, I think that's uh, fair. Like, I think yeah. that's fair. There might be some sure. people,
2: you know, who are not Christians and they like this vibe of a, of a church, of a large attractional church.
0: I wonder if it says something about society too, and whether it says something about perhaps what people are looking for in terms of what does it mean to be a part of a church or to attend a church. I wonder if location has a part to play with it too, that we can see certain churches in certain neighborhoods perhaps start to grow, but then growth is kind of either capped or stopped and or it turns the other direction and people move out of neighborhoods and then move into other neighborhoods and then those churches start to grow. And so I'm sure that some of this contributes to some of the the numbers that we see in in some of these churches. So kind of making a little pivot too, you know, I want to go back to the, what Xenia was kind of saying earlier about kind of ratio-wise, you know, it's like, okay, we have a smaller population in Canada, at least in our cities, and so then our megachurches may not be the same type of numbers as we see to the neighbors to the south, but there are still pretty big churches around, too, and maybe from a Canadian context, we see, you know, we see certain churches kind of get to a very large size, and so I want to kind of maybe dwell on this for just a moment. You know, what does it mean to be a Canadian megachurch? And perhaps even talk about what does it mean to be a Canadian Asian megachurch?
3: I wonder if like the Canadian Asian mentality is that that is what we want to be, a megachurch. Like multi-staff, multi-location, this giant sanctuary of like 1,800 people, 2,000 people. Uh, like that is the mecca
0: of of our our asian churches but what's underneath that i want to ask what's underneath that why do they see that as that's what we want
3: i think there's a lot lot of american christianity that have shaped our ideological understanding of what church should be You know how we practice church. You know, like we we sometimes joke, like you know, we always try to be saddleback because that's a cool, that's a cool and new thing, right? And there's a lot of that, and it's not like just all negative, but it's the reality that like, like I think a lot of Asian churches are impacted by American Christianity, and so if American Christianity is had had, uh, I'm not saying that I think it's the same now, although that's still a prevalent voice, then that is still the continuation of a trend uh, of a particular generation.
0: That's pretty fascinating because I think this leads into kind of our next question, which is I'm wondering if they equate seeing a church like Saddleback or we could use any other big church that we see, the model of the church, the size of the church, and equates that with success or equates that with efficiency or effectiveness or a sense of the Lord's blessing, you know, like I'm just throwing these things out there. And I'm wondering if there has been kind of this convergence between those two terms is that they want it because that's how they define being a successful church.
1: It's interesting you say that, right? We had James Robertson a couple months back on our podcast and he says, well, Canadian Christianity is a loser Christianity. <laughs> we don't we don't like being losers very much, right? Um, and so I think I even wonder if we sometimes diasporic churches, not all of them, but some of them certainly understand what it means to be Canadian and that conflation of the West, like just Canada and America are the exact same. But I want to just drop a book rec here. Helen Jin Kim, I think her name is, she's got a book out called Race for Revival, how Cold War South Korea shaped the American Evangelical Empire. I haven't finished it, but in her book, she talks about how America helped to, like Billy Graham was a major person in that movement. But then also, what did, what did someone, for example, like uh, David Yonggi Cho, bring back to the States? How did that travel the Trans-Pacific? So I come from a Hong Kong background, and for sure, like, my parents didn't become Christian until they moved to Canada, but the British Empire was so tied up with Christendom, right? Like, so much of their impetus for colonialism or imperialism, like, some of it was just pure economic gain, and some of it was very much like, oh, we have this moral impetus to go save the heathen. I say this quotes, and then you bring in the American missionaries. And so then you've set up white people in authority. And they're saying, well, success looks this way. And so I wonder if there's just some, and I'm not saying all white people, don't hear that, please don't hear that. But I'm, just, I'm wondering in some way whether or not they just took that narrative with them when they immigrated. And said, well, to succeed is to be like the white people. And so we're going to follow the best white people we know who are recommended by the missionaries who discipled us. (laughs) And so when you have a major movement like the Southern Baptist denomination going out and sending missionaries, well, then. Is it, you know, any chance that they would just not turn to the Southern Baptist movement? No course, they would look to the Southern Baptist movement, and so some of it is just, I think, a thing that happened. They should they, look
2: at the Southern Baptist movement now.
1: Well, I I don't know that there was a whole lot of critical thought that was involved, <laughs> but here we go, here we are.
2: But but I think that's why also the critique that we have, like that, is definitely I think where where a lot of uh, this kind of triumphalism or, or what has what is deemed successful for for uh, a lot of a lot of well, Asian churches trying to follow in this in this kind of direction comes from that. Trying to uh, oh, let's take that success from 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 uh, these, you know, white evangelical churches that we think will be you know so successful. But then it's also like, but what's the fruit of it? And I think that's the question that we're trying to we're trying to get deeper into. I think in our conversations here, that is just like this is definitely hasn't been. <laughs> You know, great fruit that's come out of how you build this sucker as big as possible, you know, and if anything, it, it, it gets like great that I, and I have I'm and that's, you know, why I'm still where I'm at in my context. It's not that, you know, people are still coming to know Jesus. We're still trying our best in, in various ways. At least there's ways that people are submitting to one another and we're trying to move forward on that. But the problem is, like, a lot of times the bigger you are, and you try to get everyone through only one system, but have no contextualization, no working things on the ground level, you kind of, yeah, you you have such a large detachment from leadership to where people are at. So, you might try to bring everyone through one system, but you don't know where a lot of people are coming from, coming through, you know, that are joining your your church context. So, you know, and not to mention, if you have a church with multi-contexts. Like, how are you going to deal with that? So, yeah, that's, I I do think that we need to think through more and more, like, it's like, okay, this was almost a great experiment, but like, is that what we're shooting for? Trying to build churches or a certain organization as big as possible. But yeah, that's just a thought about that.
3: You know, this might be a tangent, but I was just kind of curious too. Like, I wonder if like, we always also misread the book of Acts. And I'm sure, like I'm a culprit of it, you know. Early on in my ministry, and how I have read, you know, the Book of Acts, and how when Peter preached, you know, these this thousand people gather, and then you know, like we're like, oh, there's, there's, they're there. See, there's a mega church. But then it's like if we don't contextualize and understand that. Well, there there were that many people present or more, um, and they did get to know Jesus, but that doesn't mean that they all gathered like that all the time, right? And so. Like, I I just wonder if sometimes we read with our modern lenses to have scripture kind of affirm, like, oh, yeah, you know, see, like, we just got to preach gospel, 2,000 people will come, and we'll build a church.
0: I wonder if some people just read it in that, like, as Jesus was ascending into heaven at the beginning of Acts, he was like, oh, and by the way, build megachurches, you know, I'm pretty sure that maybe, like, no one would admit to that, but. Some people probably have adopted that kind of mentality is that that's what it means when they start to read other parts of Acts and they're like, wow, thousands came to know. Therefore, that must be a mega church. That is the symbol of what does it mean to be a successful, faithful church. But I really like how Shu kind of talked about it, which is like, what is the fruit that is being produced? And I think whether a church grows because they have pursued a certain model or a western perspective. I know we were kind of talking about the whole idea of whiteness and it, that's definitely a, a conversation for another day. But even from an eastern perspective too where you know ter- families came together because there was a sense of community, there was a sense of, you know, survival and the sense of like, you know, kind of the homogeneous principle, like-minded, like coming from the same background and like they're there to support each other and the more immigrants that come, then the bigger the churches got too, right? But I like the idea, I like the question that talks about like what is the fruit? Because this is kind of to fire back a little bit on Shu a little bit, which he said that, yeah, there are people coming to know Jesus. We're seeing these things happen in our mega churches. But then when they see that happen, or then when they see that look, look at all the people that are coming and the good things that are happening, it actually holds them back or prevents them from putting in the hard work of contextualization, or what does it mean to be on mission, or what does it mean to, you know, go deeper into following Jesus in these other aspects of following Jesus, because we see it, we see
2: it all. But that happens in smaller churches too. There you go. You know, that's not a, that's not a big church issue. It's, there's hindrances in a big church and, you know, that can definitely mess it up even more, but there's also smaller church hindrances and, and we were talking about in a previous podcast, how sometimes leaders are so burnt out, they don't even have time to think about, they're, like, they're just trying to get through the week, you know, preach the message and just try to like chill, you know, like, they're just you know, take their Sabbath Sunday or Monday or whatever. But, you know, like, it, it, it's, it's that kind of weird place where you could be a smaller church and have those issues and be a larger church and have those issues. But are you at least having space to have some of that dialogue? And our people, like you, like you said, being having space to be formed and and think through the, the contextual issues, the the formational issues. And I think you could do still do that as a large church, but there is definitely things that hinder that. I I totally admit.
1: So I think I want to say that if the goal for the church at the end of the day is to just make sure that the church building survives or that the church continues to function. And probably the church structure has lost its way. The church structure has forgotten that the structure was made for the human. So I'm, I'm riffing off of Jacques loul here. So if you want to dive into Jacques Ellul, technological, he's got an essay called Technological Order, but you could also read like, anyways, I'll, I'll drop a couple of links after this, but just anyway, or you can read Marva Dawn because she has made him a little bit more accessible. But if, Like the structure has forgotten that it exists to serve people, to point people towards God, then the structure no longer is actually viable, right? The structure no longer helps people worship God. But if your structure actually says, well, no, actually, we're going to empower people to live into their gifts, to go out and spread the good news and to love their neighbor, then it's a good structure. Like that's what the structure was made to do. So. I don't know if it's a mega church or a small church thing. I think equally guilty. I just think it's easier for mega churches to fall into the trap of sustaining the mega church as opposed to like let's actually go out and stay there and be people of peace in our neighborhoods.
3: I wonder if that's because like the larger you are, the more systems you got to uphold, right? And I think about like even how the as you as you grow and as you expand bigger, like you need more energy to manage all this stuff. And so, if like the the purpose was to kind of extend out, like then you gotta manage what you have and extend out. So it is harder. At the same time, you know, I think I know we've kind of critiqued the hell out of megachurches today, but I also think that like megachurches can be cool places of uh creativity and reimagination of space and reimagining like how to see the needs of community and begin to be a part of you know the be, be one of the partners in seeing a community flourish with its kind of incredible amount of resources right and so like yeah i don't know i think there is also hope so i don't want to like you know after people hearing this oh I give up on mega church um, <laughs> not that you will but I just think like we need to to explore and see something deeper.
1: This is where yeah. I'm blithe and I say, I quote Uncle Ben, right? Like with great power comes great responsibility, right? Just it's not just to Spider-Man. It's so
3: with great sizes comes right. great responsibility. <laughs> whoa, whoa.
2: At, at first I was like, You're gonna say Uncle Simon, but okay. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> we love
0: you, Uncle Simon. <laughs>
2: No, and I agree with that. I definitely agree with that statement. Observationally, I've also seen smaller churches have a tough time letting go too, right? Like when you get so small and things start petering out or like you're, you know, they have a hard time. Maybe we should call it quits. You know, maybe this is not the you know right thing to gather anymore. Maybe we should, you know, move forward. So I've also seen from a smaller church context that it hasn't been easy on that side too, but for sure, I think with larger churches, there's a lot of responsibility there. And when it becomes very authoritarian, actually, I think we didn't get into that conversation. I don't know if we want to, but a lot of large churches can be, you know, that one CEO style of leadership, you know, that sits at the top and makes decisions or, you know, and it, it becomes, and that's why we have, and I'll be honest, I think that's the danger that we see in a lot of mega churches where certain people hold so much power and it's used in such wrong ways, either even in abusive ways, and they try to get away with it. And the power systems hold that person up, but there's no accountability. So, I think a large church could function if you, it could function more healthily if you have a bit more passing around that power and uh, working together. And, and it's not just one person sitting on top, but, you know, I think some churches go through a plurality of eldership. But even that can be messed up too.
0: Well, I think that has some ties towards how do we uphold systems and structures and what do we do to cope with stresses and and such like that, which we can talk about definitely in another conversation. But it's just been so interesting to have this conversation about megachurches because perhaps there is this idealistic dream and Perhaps it's a delusion, but maybe for some, they think that, okay, if our churches gets bigger, we actually have more resources and capacity and availability for, for disciples to mature, to be, more neighbor, to be more engaged in their neighborhood, to be more, in a sense, tighter as a community. And yet, it seems like there are some specific challenges that megachurches face that, you know, the larger it gets, there could be this danger of becoming isolated and becoming disconnected and becoming anonymous in a megachurch. And the dangers of also trying to invest all of our time and effort to uphold the systems and structures that then it takes up all our bandwidth that we can't actually do the things that we feel we should be doing or we feel called to do. And what does that mean? And so it's almost this kind of, you know, catch-22 that we feel like, okay, if we can only get to the size, we can do more. But then getting to that size means that we have more to maintain and more to to keep going that prevents us from doing the things that we want to. Like even from the relational standpoint, that hearing from many who attend megachurches, how easy it is to be part of a megachurch. But to also feel like you're alone, that you can't actually build you know, these deeper relationships. And therefore, it's harder to grow as a disciple because you can't find a community to do that. But perhaps all the resources and the attractional qualities kind of drew you in at one point. And so what do we do with something like that? And I think that's why it's perhaps go, always goes back to the posture, the intentionality. And it's not whether a mega church. Or a smaller church is better or worse, but rather, you know, how are we living in a way that, you know, is 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 glorifying God and and being discerning about what the Spirit is is asking us to be and to do.
1: So I won't disagree with you, John, but I will say the megachurch is harder.
0: Oh, specific challenges,
1: yeah. Right. So, like, to create community, to be discipled, to remember not to just be like a utilitarian cog in the system or the machine, right? It's just harder in a mega church because of the way that the systems are set up and the complex needs and the systems management and you, I think we don't talk about this enough because it's a dirty word, but any place where there is gatherings of people there are politics. And so would like just relationally, how do you manage however many people, when we know that someone's capacity for, you know, a gathering of people is maybe a hundred people, right? Like you can only have a certain amount of limitation. You have limitations in respect to how many people you can relate with. So it's not worse necessarily, though maybe I privately disagree, but it certainly is harder.
0: (laughs) So maybe we'll just end off this conversation with perhaps each of us Talking about, like, just sharing very briefly, you know, what then for the megachurch? Where should the megachurch go? You know, should it be a church that multiplies and plants new churches? Should it be a church that needs to be regularly doing an evaluation and audit? And can it exist in the midst of those specific challenges that we are just talking about? What do you guys think? Does, does, do you think that it needs to, to lean in a certain direction without being prescriptive, but to be exploring other possibilities of moving forward?
2: Well, I think for those who know me, probably some of the listeners might know who I am. But like, like part of why even I, I was pushing a lot of my church was to decentralize for the sake of uh, becoming more on the ground level to be encouraging those who live around your area to actually be salt and light in your area, which will require not just going to church on your large church on Sunday, but to have to be a community that learns to love one another, be a community that learns to love your neighbors and know what's going on. (laughs) And I don't think we got it all together, but for me, it was like, that's the natural step to be, you know, extending that presence of Christ. So if you just keep doing that for yourself in your large church context and just go to a fellowship or small group, and then that's your, your faith, you know, that's your Christian walk, like, wait, you're missing this. And, you know, whole point of our podcast, living this out, this mission that God sends us out. So, you know, I think at least Rick Warren, I'll give him some credit in that he wants to send out. He was like building up people to send them out, (laughs) whatever language he wants to use. But, you know, like, I do hope that we send people out and not just try to, you know, grab power and, and try to just have nice little versions of those churches. But to be honest, that's what some denominations are. So at least the, ho- the, at least the next step hope, and not to say this is like a big hope, but I think a lot of large churches should be sending out churches and allowing them and not to give them autonomy that the Holy Spirit will work within that community locally. So it's like, you want. You might not be able to immediately be autonomous, but at least you can build towards that and, you know, build a community that's being formational, that's being discipled to follow Christ in, in that place. So that's my hope, at least in a larger church, but, you know, maybe it's a pipe dream. I don't know. One of you guys can rip on me after.
1: I'm going to add to that and say that large churches also have a responsibility to know where they are in the political fabric of their city. So... You just have to know that you have an outsized influence on the school board. You have an outsized influence on the town or city council. What you say has influence, whether you say it in your own native tongue or in English, you have a responsibility to steward the power that you've been given. So I, you know, a friend told me this story about being on a school board and then All of a sudden, people are like, well, what about that Chinese church down the road? Like, what do they have to say about this issue or another? And then the Chinese church, like, basically said, we don't get involved in those things. Well, I'm sorry, you're already involved. You're not apolitical. You're actually part of the fabric of the city. And to bear good witness to the gospel means being a good neighbor as a church entity um, and not just as individual members of the church.
0: I think actually uh, the things we've been talking about almost give us a litmus test of where we can be going and not to be saying at a certain number we have to do this or not do this but rather you know are we a community that is able to glorify God and submit to the lordship of Christ and to love one another well if we get to a point where those specific challenges that we were mentioning earlier are making it harder and harder for us to do that and for harder and harder for us to mature and grow as disciples and harder and harder for us to really see it as a part of the fabric of a church to be engaged in our world and and living on mission, aside from just a program side, but as part of who we are, like our ethos, our our like our heartbeat, then perhaps that's the time to say, like, maybe we're hitting a size that we're not able to do this well, and we need to be open to seeing, should we be willing to send churches out? Should we be willing to plant churches or to multiply? Would we be willing to be a church that regularly sends people to go to other churches? (laughs) That might be something that's blasphemous, but yeah.
2: I think what's so hard about that is that we don't disciple our people for that intention. Like, right. Like we're not, we're not discipling them necessarily for mission or even a, a imagination of mission in that way. It's just stay here and build up this sucker usually,
0: right. No matter what size you are, but do we need I, a more I, differentiation between, okay, you know, building up this thing, you know, has some value, but what about this other thing? right? How do we disciple toward these decisions, like toward these directions and convictions?
1: I just want to also add that institutional churches really love the pastoral and teaching gifts. And often it's the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists who are given the boot. So if you're thinking about how to restructure your church leadership, think about who's on your church leadership. You need your prophets, you need your apostles, you need your evangelists. If they're making a lot of noise, pay attention to that. Because that's probably what you need to hear. Now, then you'll say, well, you know, they're just not discipled enough. Like, maybe they're just just immature Christians. Okay, that's fine. But even God can speak through a donkey, right? Like, (laughs) it's not really about what you think is a mature Christian. I think that everything, everybody has something to bring to the table. And if you've got an immature prophet, your, your responsibility isn't to say, no, no, calm down, child, like, just be quiet. It's, oh, I see these giftings in you. Can we talk about them? Can we explore them? What are you seeing at my church, at our church that needs to change and why? Like, what do we, can we discern in the spirit together? So that's because I, you know, I have all these apostles, evangelists, and prophets, and I have no pastors. So, like, if you would like to send some pa- people with pastoral gifts my way, I'd be deeply grateful. I'm just, I'm just saying.
0: <laughs> that's so good. That's so good. And I think that breaks the mold too, to also have us reevaluate what are we describing as success, because I think there is that part of it too where when we see that, okay, people are going to churches when they say, oh, I love the preaching, you know, or I feel cared for. Those are only highlighting and elevating two of those gifts. But we don't have a way for us to say, like, how do we, you know, really welcome all the gifts and how are all the gifts important for us to play a part in our church when people say, like, oh, okay, like, those gifts are not bringing in the people, Therefore, do we lean into those gifts? And this kind of goes back to our full conversation today. And that's tough. I think that's tough. It's humbling for us to admit that like, oh, we haven't done that well, right? And perhaps we need a better way to do it. Man, this conversation, it's been crazy. And it's been mega. Once again, more puns. And so we, we just want to hear what you guys think as our listeners. We would value your feedback Do you agree? Disagree? Do you have something to add? Let us know. There's a whole bunch of ways to get in touch with us, but please join this conversation. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or you can email us at contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. That way you'll always be caught up with what's been happening with this conversation. Also, share it with others too who you think might be interested or might find it helpful as well. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast. and We hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.